in, uh, in numerous contexts on marriages. Uh, he and I were just talking. I heard him come and give a conference uh, for RUF staff when I was on the RUF staff three years ago. So Dr. Cox, in addition, kind of doing his um, like conferences like this, also sees a full slate of patients at his practice. So it's a rare treat to have him come out and to participate in this. He loves windsurfing and cooking, and I think he loves being here with us. So if you would, please give a warm welcome to Dr. John Cox. Honey, 
you've got to share your secrets, right? You know, other husbands are missing out. It's just not fair to wives that, you know, you, you have these abilities and don't share them. That's not um, what happened. She's actually, I think, given up believing him as she could do any of In fact, we had a really nasty fight last night. I might get around to telling you all about it sometime this weekend. So um, I am just as fallen as the next guy, as big a knuckleheaded husband as any of you guys are. It's just not going to sound that way. Because speakers always sound like they're really good at what they're talking about, right? This woman came up to my wife once at a conference. And she goes up to my wife, literally after the conference, and goes, what must it be like to be married? <laughs> and my wife tactfully goes, you have no idea. <laughs> so we're all pretty fallen. Um, this talk and um, Q&A and all probably will take two hours. So that will run us late. So if any of you who are due home to a babysitter, you can text them now. I'm giving you a fair warning. Usually it takes two hours if we do the talk and have some Q&A and a break. So just in case it goes in. Um, so we're falling. That's kind of where we're going to start. Um, we're all falling knuckleheads. But it wasn't always that way. In case you didn't know, marriage wasn't always painful and marriage conferences weren't always necessary. A zillion years ago, I would be out of work because in the beginning, God created the world and he created marriage in a way that was wonderful. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had a wonderful marriage. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us about their marriage. Bible describes Adam and Eve's marriage in Genesis. Anybody know what it says? How does it describe their relationship? It was very good. It was very good, he said. The Bible says more specifically, and this is key because it's still in your noggin somewhere, it says the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. And that is not the you know announcement of the first nudist colony. That is a relational status. In other words, and this is super important for you to know, because it's in the background of everything going on for you in your marriage. Naked and not ashamed means, and try this on, see if you like it. They were able to be truly themselves and they were loved. They were able to express their longings and those were received. They were able to disagree or express an idea and it was welcomed. They were able to goof up and it was okay, it was forgiven. You are able to see fully me naked, and I don't need to be ashamed. It's safe. I mean, anybody want that? We'll pass a sign-up sheet around, you know? And every one of us would sign. I want to begin there because that longing that God created us to have hardwired in you is the longing to be able to be naked and not ashamed. I want you to know me, and I want you to want me. That's behind every fight you have. What do you say in a fight? Why can't you be more? Why are you saying that? Because it's not just because your spouse is a jerk or something. It's because we want the, the bad to be good again. We're protesting with each other to want this to feel good again. I want you to give one another the benefit of the doubt in that sense. We're going to talk about conflict and issues in marriage, but we've got to begin with the fact that, you know, I have couples say to me sometimes, we have nothing in common. And I'm like, well, you know, one thing you do have in common is that you're both hurting and you both want the hurt to stop. You want this to feel good again. In that sense, you're same and samesies. Right? <laughs> Besties. Right? 
God created us to have this thing that's naked and not ashamed. Something in you longs for that. It's one of the reasons you came here. How can we have this relationship that feels better? Right? Now, one thing you have in common, regardless of where your marriage is, is that both of you want that. All right? Now, naked and not ashamed. I'm bad at this whole thing. Sorry. Um, anyway, we call it up now? Yeah. Now, if you're like me, when you first fell in love, you kind of got that feeling for a little while. You know, with new love, there's this sense of like, oh my gosh, you're wonderful. You know? Uh, one of my colleagues calls it spaghetti love. It's like, oh my gosh, you like spaghetti too? You know, that sort of thing. Where you have the giddy butterflies, and it's really exciting. You leave notes in each other's cars and finish each other's sandwiches. Um, or, you know, he writes you poems. You know, ladies, you've got a lot of poems lately. You still writing your poems? You know, but we have that sort of excited sense that we delight in each other. And there's this wonderful love we have. You kind of have that at the beginning. I'm going to call that the ideal. And something in us likes that, wants that, and wants to keep that. That wonderful new love, excitement, this feels wonderful, right? And that's actually okay. The whole ideal, giddy, joyful, excited love piece. A lot of us old married types, you know, we see the new couple in love, and we kind of roll our eyes, and we kind of go, oh, they're in that dreamy stage, just you wait, you know? But I don't want to knock it, all right? Number one, I think we were created for that kind of joy. Number two, I think that's a lot of what heaven's going to be like, is that feeling of naked and not ashamed again, that it's safe to be me in deep, deep intimacy. That's what we were created for. Thirdly, I want us to start working back to that kind of wonder. I want your mirrors to have qualities of naked and not ashamed, all right? So I don't want to knock it. But I do want to talk about what to do when you lose it, because you will, Okay? And any singles out there who are going, I'm not aware of the fact that that wonderful new love thing goes away. Well, in the words of Yoda, you will be. You will be. All right? <laughs> because it's not too long before reality starts knocking at the door. And we have not the idea, but the ordeal. Or the raw deal. And now planet Earth is full of things that stink. You know, you hurt me, you attack me, you don't understand me, you're too busy for me, you're talking on your, playing on your phone while we're sitting at dinner. Um, Norma says sometimes just the way he breathes and <laughs> So when we first got married, we lived in this creaky little uh, 1920s duplex in the Bellhaven area of Jackson. We came home from our honeymoon and we're, you know, in our new little duplex with these hardwood floors and all this. And it was cool and charming, but it was old and rickety. And uh, we're getting ready for bed, and all of a sudden we hear this creaky, clinking, banging sound downstairs. We both look at each other like, what was that? I'm like, I don't know. And she goes, well, maybe it was the boogeyman or something. And I'm like, right. And she goes, well, go check. And I'm like, no, you go check. <laughs> And she says, well, my daddy would have gone and checked. I'm like, great, let's call your daddy. <laughs> so she looks at her barbarian here who's going to protect her, and all of a sudden she's in the ordeal a week into marriage, you know. Um, all right, so you with me so far? We're created for naked and not ashamed. We sort of get it at first with this wonderful sense of love feels good. 
real life is going to happen, your own fallenness is going to happen, and it starts to feel bad. There's this yuck in our relationship. What are we going to do with it? So the arrival of this yuck in any marriage, any relationship, is kind of a crisis. All right? Problem number one is all of a sudden there's yuck. Problem number two is most humans, most people, most marriages really have no idea of what to do once you hit the disappointment and the loss and the sorrow and the yuck. We don't know what to do. In fact, think about it. Think about your relationship. What is it that we tend to do when we start encountering yuck and unpleasantness or disappointment or sadness or hurt in our relationship? Usually what we do is we start demanding, criticizing, trying to protest and blame to get that ideal back again. Again, remember, that's why we say things like, why can't you be more so-and-so? I can't believe that you... And what happens is we hit that ordeal and things get yucky. And my best solution for dealing with it is to start being yucky to you. And so what I see a lot of times in the office is couples who have a problem or some pain in their life or disappointment that they need to deal with, there's a problem. But instead of solving the problem, the most natural, normal thing for a human to do when we encounter pain and yuck is to attack one another about it. Now, of course, sometimes there are those people who are more compliant, like I'm just going to try to be really good and be so good that you're never disappointed in me. But the general vibe is we go attacky, blamey. I call this a blame marriage. And a ton of marriages turn into blame marriages. I was um, meeting with a couple early this week. And um, his father had called and blessed him out on the phone. He's 50 years old. His father called him out and blessed him out on the phone. Instead of standing up to his father, he went and he's like, yes sir, yes sir, like a whooped dog. And then was go, went and was ugly to their son. In other words, his dad was ugly to him and he went and was ugly to his son. Now, his wife was in there telling me about it. Now, that's a problem, right? That's not good for his dad to talk to him like that. It's not good for him to not stand up to his dad. And it's not good for him to take it out of his son. But what his wife said was, then his father called, and he did. So he just sat there like a little boy and let his father do so-and-so. And blah, blah, blah. And then he turned to our son, and she was going into blame attack mode about the ordeal. That's our natural inclination. Think about it in your life. All right, now, we'll get to how unproductive that is in just a minute. But this whole practice of blaming one another, when we run into a problem, instead of actually solving the problem as teammates, was begun by our dear mother and father, Adam and Eve. What did they first do after they sinned? They hid, and then God comes and says, Who told you you were naked? And Adam, if you remember the story, does what any self-respecting husband would do. He blames his wife. <laughs> right? In fact, he manages to blame God and Eve in one sentence. He says, the woman who you gave to me. All right? Which I think is really pretty good for your first day as a sinner. <laughs> <laughs> it's like hitting a, a double as a rookie in the big leagues. It's like he's taken right to this, you know? <laughs> now, in case you haven't noticed... As you've gone to our favorite technique of blame, blame doesn't get you very far. Rarely does your spouse go, you know, you're right, I am the bad guy. It doesn't get you much fulfillment in your marriage, and it doesn't fix the ordeal. Nevertheless, most marriages become what I call marriages of 
blame. In other words, if this hurts, it must be your fault. Which, instead of a couple learning to solve a problem together, turns a couple into this game where they live in who's the bad guy hot potato. Right? So one of the first things I want to deal with when I deal with a couple is their focus is not how do we fix this. Their focus is I can't believe that she. I call that she language or he language. And I hear it all the time in my office. Now, this whole blame thing is a huge problem, all right? Number one, we've lost the ideal. We're not naked and not ashamed anymore. Number two, we have lots of pain and problems in the ordeal. And number three, now the best we can come up with to deal with that is to beat each other up about it. I mean, pardon me, but that's a terrible plan. There's got to be a better solution. Well, there is, and I'm going to tell you what it is. I think the solution is... And I think this is the gospel applied to marriage. The third stage in my book, what we will talk about, is what I call a growth marriage. And that is a marriage that's about love and truth and growing together versus blame and condemnation. All right? Two parts to this. Step number one is let's quit blaming, number one, because we're both fallen here. One of the things we're going to talk about tonight is what fallenness looks like. How you are each both broken and bringing your yuck to the relationship. One thing you have very in common is you both want the ideal back. But another thing you have both very in common is you're both contributing to the problems. You both have limitations. I want you on the same team with that. So step one is kind of like, let's bring grace to this. God's first step in the gospel is, yeah, you're screwed up, but I'm going to make it safe in Christ. And just like that, the first step in a gospel marriage, a marriage that's Christ-centered, is one that says, man, you're a mess and so am I. Now let's make that safe and say love is bigger than that. And then step two, the gospel doesn't start, stop there. It says, yeah, you're fallen and it's safe, but now how do we grow? Let's start getting to be like Christ, how about it? So this is where we're going to go this weekend. I want to talk to you about... What are the things that are broken in us? What keeps us from having a good marriage? I want you on the same team, not as enemies. I want you as friends, broken, fallen friends. That's why I started out this, this evening telling you that I'm as big a screwed up guy as you are and that I had a fight with my wife last night. Because there isn't anybody who's got it together. Welcome to this club, this sinful, broken people's club. All right? I want to begin by saying it's safe. The gospel says it's safe for you to be fallen together. Now, let's start asking the question of what does it look like to grow to be the kind of person who can do a powerful, loving relationship? This is going to be a little bit different than other marriage conferences maybe you have been to. I'm going to skip over all the things you could get in a marriage book. You know, like getaway weekends and five meaningful touches and men are like microwaves and women are like crock pots, you know, try to get something a little more, you know, significant. <laughs> We're going to spend some serious time tomorrow talking about intimacy and what it is and what it's not and how different parts of us like dance in that. What does closeness mean? How do you do that? Um, and we're going to talk and kind of, a, we're going to kind of deconstruct fighting in conflict because I want you to be real heads up on that. Tonight, however, what we're going to do is go big picture. I want to look at what a growth marriage looks like. I want to look at the things that you need in order to do marriage well, all right? 
The secret to overcoming the ordeal is what it looks like for you to grow as a person. All right? When you start asking the question of what is it that I need to grow to be more like Christ and more powerful and have the equipment I need to do relationship better, and spouse does too, it works. All right? So let's get started. What's growth? I'm going to have to get a little psychological here for a minute. All right? So bear with me. Basically, growth, not rocket science. It is the process where we develop the abilities, functionally, relationally, that we need to do life, to do relationships, to serve God. All right? Let me, let me explain it more like this. God made us in such a way that in order for life to work, in order for us to um, be functional or to have a friend, or have friends, or to buy a car, or to hold down a job, or to serve God, he made us to where we need to have very specific functional abilities in our heart, in our character. All right? In other words, we need skills like Napoleon Dynamite. You know, hey, Pedro, you've got skills. Right? <laughs> Same kind of thing. In other words, functioning in relationships and in life as a person is kind of like being a car. In other words, think about it. In order for a car to be worth anything or to be useful, it's got to be able to do a lot of things. It's got to be able to go, and it's got to be able to stop, and it's got to be able to turn, and it's got to have you know signals. And if it's in Mississippi, it needs an air conditioner. I think Oklahoma, too. Um, so let's imagine this car without one of its abilities. And it's going down the freeway of life, and it doesn't have brakes. And all of a sudden, the a soul in front of it slams on his brakes and you want to stop right? You mean well. You don't want to hit him but you're lacking an ability. You don't have brakes so you smash into him. Now what's wrong with you? Are you stupid? Do you need medication? No. You didn't have brakes. You never developed that ability. Humans are exactly the same way. We call that those character abilities and what they mean is the relational emotional, spiritual abilities we need to do life and serve God. In other words, for a psychologist, character is a technical term. We don't mean like integrity, like he's a man of character. But we don't mean, hey, he's a real character. For us, it's a technical term that refers to this collection of abilities that humans have to have in order to do life. In other words, it's kind of like our software. All right? And here's the secret of the universe. The reason people have symptoms or the reason people struggle or have marriage problems or can't manage sin in their life is not because they're bad or dumb or have chemical imbalance or need advice. It's usually because they're missing one of these character abilities somewhere or have injuries there. And that's going to produce fruit. One of those fruits might be that you have trouble in your marriage. So let me give you some examples in the relational world. Somebody gets married. Do they have, did they learn, did they develop, were they taught the software, the ability to be emotionally close? Can they let somebody know their heart? Some people never were taught that. For some people, you know, they get back from the honeymoon, and it's kind of like me and my best friend, the remote control, and their spouse is like, well, where'd you go? That's not necessarily because they don't care. They may have never learned that ability. We're going to talk about that. Um, did you learn the ability? Were you taught? Were you given in relationships is where we learn these to uh, manage destructive choices can you say no to your impulses I see a lot of people who get involved in 
what our culture calls addictions, which technically are compulsive behaviors, usually, unless it's a chemical. Um, and they can't stop. So did they learn to have the ability to push back on their impulses? Some people never did. Did they learn what it means to feel forgiven? Can they fail or make a mistake or talk about their, their lackings without going to shame or blame? Some people can't do that. They have to look like you know, Superman all the time. Did we learn that ability? Can I stand up to um, authority people in my life? Can I push back on the boss or the contractor or my spouse if I need to? Or do I live in a one-down child position in my life? These are abilities that you have to have in order to do life. And all of us are missing some of them. Okay? Anyway, what I found is when people are having symptoms, be they depression or anxiety or OCD or eating disorders or porn addiction or pick a card, any card, again, it's not because they're dumb or stupid or need advice. It's usually because they're missing some of these abilities. And that's what good therapy is, by the way. You don't fix depression. You fix the character ability that's missing and the depression evaporates. All right? That's how we're going to look at your marriage. Now, we learn these abilities in relationships. For some reason I don't understand, God decided that the place that we would develop and collect these abilities is in relationships with other people. God made it to where our hearts develop there. Obviously, that starts in childhood. Those are your first relationships, all right? That's why psychologists are always asking about your mama and your dad. It's not because we're looking for somebody to blame everything on because we're looking for where did you originally start learning in relationships your software? What might be missing there, okay? Now, this is going to be key later. Adult relationships are a place where we can continue this process of developing these abilities, all right? Preview of coming attractions, all right? But God made us to where what's supposed to happen is this. We're supposed to grow up in relationships that are called developmental relationships where people are teaching us how to love and how to be strong and how to understand forgiveness. And we're supposed to live in those relationships until ultimately we come out of that with a full toolbox of things we can do characterologically and love well and fail well and, and, and submit well and be strong well. And we call that an adult only problem is none of us do that, all right? Only problem is there's only one guy we know like that. And he lives off in Montana somewhere, right? The rest of us, you know, we're screwed up. In other words, this is a great plan, but since sin entered the world, it screwed this whole plan up. The world is now broken. You know, your parents were fallen. Their parents were fallen. You know the old joke, if you think mama's crazy, you should have met grandma, you know? So now, secret of the universe, my foundation for this marriage conference, you're going to, we're going to all hit adulthood, missing some of the pieces, some of the abilities that we need to have characterologically in our software to do life and to do relationships, and we're going to hit life without some of those, and that's going to leave a mark, all right? And then we come to our romantic relationship which is the place we're told is supposed to be the place of the most fulfillment and joy, and we start running into things we can't do or abilities that our spouse can't do, so things don't get done because romantic relationships require a lot of these character abilities, and you're going to have marriage problems or work problems 
or functional problems or spiritual problems. And you're going to think, ah, I knew I should have married that bass player. But the problem isn't really with your marriage, okay? The problem is that both of you are lacking abilities that God created you to need in his image. And then you're coming with incompleteness to your relationship, okay? No one's the bad guy. We're both just incomplete here, all right? That's the safety and the grace. I saw a couple a while back, and they were just talking to divorce. They were ready to give it up. It didn't work. And I knew them pretty well, and I said, you know, let me put it to you this way. You want to trade this car in? The truth is, there's really nothing wrong with this car. The truth is, both of you are terrible drivers, right? In other words, you don't need a new car, you need a driver's head, right? So, key piece for John Cox's view on marriage is the problem is not necessarily your marriage. It's that one or both of you are lacking some of the character abilities we need to make marriage work. And we're going to talk about what they are. So here's the correct question. How do I grow with you together for us to do married stuff better? That's a technical term, by the way. So we use it in the field of psychology, so married stuff. Um, anyway, how do I grow to the place where I can do married stuff better? What do we need in our software? What is it that we need to be able to learn? What are those abilities? You learn that, that will enrich your marriage. And guess what? If your spouse is not interested, it doesn't matter. You can still change your marriage if you learn them. Okay? So we're going to talk through them now, tonight. We're going to look at two of them in more detail tomorrow. And I want you both thinking, as we talk about these tonight, which one of these might be my blind spot? Which one of these might be an area where I need to grow? Which one of these might be an area where I see myself slacking? Which one of these might be an area where my spouse needs to grow? And I want you to think that in that order. With me? Now you get it. All right, good. All right. And you singles, I want you thinking... I want you to develop in a grid for what is it that I want to look for in a spouse? What's a healthy, grounded, whole person look like? All right? And how can I be growing to become more like that? The healthier you are emotionally, the better picker you'll be for a spouse. All right? And looking at your relationship now, married or single, not as a place where your spouse or your boyfriend's a jerk or something, but a place where we're both all incomplete, not enemies. All right? Let's look at them. I call them the four I's. You know they say there's no I in teen? Well, there is in marriage. <laughs> there's four. <laughs> First one, intimacy. In other words, relational closeness, attachment, connection, openness. All right? And we need to be able to go two ways with this. We're going to need to be able to go two ways with all of them. Number one, can I let you in? Number two, can I keep you in? All right? These are two of the most vital abilities that you have to have as a person if you're going to do marriage well. All right? Can I let you in? What does that mean? Think about what we usually talk about in daily life. If we're just hanging out and talking. We chit-chat. We do what we're going to call tomorrow new sports and weather. It's like, have you heard Trump's latest tweet? What's going on with the Kavanaugh thing? How about them Golden Eagles? You know, and as we say in Mississippi, how's your mama and them? You know, we chit-chat, new sports and weather, all right? 
Or we communicate sort of solve a problem, like should we remodel or should we move or have we paid the bills yet? And that's a level at which we communicate a lot. And those are really valid. You gotta make life happen. We're not building a commune here, all right? But if that's as deep as you can go relationally, we're never gonna get a real sense of who you are, all right? We won't be able to feel close to you. In other words, let, can I let you in means did I learn the ability, was I taught in relationships, ability to know what I feel about things? Some people don't know. Can I communicate to you what I feel about things? And can I care about what it feels like to be you about things? All right? That's all intimacy is. All right? It's not complicated. But for a marriage to be meaningful, you got to kind of be able to go below the surface, so to speak, and, quote, let you in. Now, that does typically mean something in the feeling realm, all right? Sorry, guys. We'll talk about feelings more tomorrow, but hearts don't talk about the weather, all right? Hearts usually say things like, I'm hurting, or I'm scared about that meeting, or I'm proud of you for what you did at work, or I can see you're exhausted from dealing with the kids. Do you hear the feeling there? Do you hear the heart communicated there? All right? In other words, we're talking about can I let you in for what it feels like to be me. This is why we're going to do, we're going to do a whole talk on this tomorrow because intimacy is a pretty vital thing. God calls this abiding with himself and with other people. He talks about its absence by saying things like, these people honor me with lip service, but their hearts are far from me. Ever hear that from your spouse? I'm seeing this guy right now, and he has a porn addiction, which is why he came to see me. But what has created that symptom, remember? The character issue is the problem. The symptom is pick a card, any card. The guy's completely disconnected emotionally from himself. So he's telling me about these horrendous stories about how painful work is. And I'm like, dude, ah, that just sounds awful. Your work feels terrible. And he's like, does it? Totally doesn't feel anything. I'm like, who knows that you're struggling like this? And he's like, well, I guess I'm struggling. And he's totally disconnected emotionally from what it feels like to be him. He can't let himself in. All right? No wonder he develops a symptom. For him, it was porn addiction or somebody else. It could be depression. All right? But the missing piece there is he can't connect with himself or anybody else. Now, as he's been learning to connect, I'm a relationship, and relationships are where we develop the stuff. This is why therapy works. I'm a relationship, and as he's learned to connect more with me, he's waking up to the fact that he actually feels things, and he's totally shifted his orientation toward porn, his depression's lifting. You can fix this stuff, all right? It ain't rocket surgery. <laughs> so if you want your marriage or your dating to progress and you want to grow, the question I want you to be asking is, hey, here's this can I let you in piece. There's one of Cox's abilities. How good am I at that? Do I know how to do that? Could this be one of my blind spots? All right. So can I let you in? If you didn't learn it, you can learn it. We'll talk more about how later on. But I want you to get the categories first. These are the problems in your marriage, not that you have a bad marriage. All right. Now, 
lets you in. That's great. Right now, all the relational types are like saying, preach it, brother. I'm so glad he's talking about this. I'm so glad I brought my husband. And you're punching to make sure he's listening, you know, all this like open up and relate stuff. This is awesome. But intimacy also means for us relator types, me and Norma are backwards, by the way. In our relationship, men are from Venus, women are from Mars. You know, I'm the one who's the touchy-feely one. You know, you'd think that. I'm a shrink, okay? But I'm the one going like, oh, quit trying to fix my feelings. I just want you to hear me. You know, that's me. Turn off that football game and talk, you know. That's it. She's like, oh, my gosh, we're off the burgers on, you know. <laughs> anyway. Intimacy also means for us relator types, have I developed the ability to feel loved and connected inside? In other words, can I keep you in? You know, a legitimate problem with a lot of us relator types is that we live our life kind of always wanting to be connected and share and affirmed and, and, and together and talking and all this kind of thing. Um, and yeah, part of love and intimacy is sharing. That's the way you impart. The other part is, what do you do with love once you get it? Can you hold on to it? A lot of us sharing types feel like that if we're not like knee-to-knee talking, that we're not you know, close enough, okay? Which drives your spouse nuts. So, yeah, are they good at opening their hearts and letting people in? But how good are we at holding on to love and knowing that you love even if you are watching the football game, okay? Now... This is different from what you hear in most marriage conferences. Most marriage conferences are like, y'all just need to open up more and have more intimacy and closeness. And that is exactly one half true. What you'll hear from me is the second half, and that is us touchy-feely types need to be strong enough to manage our own stuff sometimes too. Can I keep you in? Right? We'll talk about this more tomorrow. If you don't do that, what happens is you come across as needy and demanding to your other spouse. And then they start to feel overwhelmed and they pull away and you're like, ah, there you go, pull it away from me again. And you start to dance, which we'll talk about tomorrow, okay? Previews of coming attractions. All right, so you get in this character abilities that we have to be taught. You have to be taught to know what you feel and share that. You have to be taught and shown in relationships to be able to be strong and hold on to your emotions and manage them and not need you to connect with me all the time. Good being me. We need to learn that. Now, oh, and by the way, what happens when can't let you in and can't keep you in go out on a date? It's love at first sight. He's like, all you want is connection, and I have no idea what you're talking about. It's perfect. You know, they always get married. I don't want to want. By the way, these are our continuum. Nobody's absolutely one or the other, but I want you to have some categories. You will tend toward one toward the, or the other, but it is a continuum, all right? Now, if you struggle with these, either way, which you do, all right, that's cool in the game, all right? Admit it to your spouse. Admit it to your boyfriend. Say, yeah, you know what? I don't do that so well. Then quit fighting. The blame marriage thing, okay? Let's start looking at the problem, which is I can't do this very well. You can't do that very well. God made it where we can grow. Let's grow and quit beating each other up. How about that? All right, second eye. Identity. This is separateness, boundaries. Um, in other words, even though we're one with someone, there's still two people involved. 
In other words, there's more to relationships than attachment <laughs> and intimacy. There's more to relationships than bath soaps and candlelight and Adele music. You know, there's also the the issue of personal, individual separateness. All right, and there's two sides to this again, as my old therapist used to say. It's a mighty thin dime that don't have two sides, all right? <laughs> so we got two sides. Can I be me? And can I make room for, can I let you be you? In other words, can we both matter here? This is, another word for this is mutuality. Now, there's a sense in which if we did these two, these are the two we're going to focus on tomorrow. We're going to talk about intimacy and we're going to talk about conflict. Because if I mean you're you, guess what? We're going to have conflict. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. But this is, all of relationship in some ways boils down to this. Can we be close, but can I still be me? Can I be different from you, but us love each other? You figure that out, and you got a good marriage. It mirrors the Trinity. Can we be separate, but one? All right? The miracle of marriage and the Trinity, all in there together. All right? All right, so can I be me? Oh, wait, I was supposed to put that slide up. Mutuality both matter. So I tell you, I'm a 20th century guy. I like a blackboard, you know, and all this like flick and slide stuff. It's, it's not, I'm not that good at it, right? <laughs> anyway, can I be me? In other words, this is vital if you're going to function. Do I have the ability, did I learn to know sort of who I am, what I value, what I choose, what I want? Can I have my ideas and you have yours? <clears throat> can I say no? Can I... Um, be close to you, but different from you. My grandson is a little over one year old, and he has learned to shake his head no. And it's like, hey, Whit, you want so-and-so? And he's like, and it's like he is, he just beams with power and might. It's like, I can say no. He's like, it's like he's, he's figured out how to engage the hyperdrive, the Millennium Falcon. He's drunk with power. You know, he can have this sense of no. I can say no. There's a wit in the universe, okay? In other words, do you know those people and half of you are those people who can't disagree or say no to other people, um, can't be who they are if somebody else is not going to like it? You know? And they're on every Sunday school committee because they can't say no. And they never able to pick a restaurant. You're like, where do you want to eat? They're like, that. And in a sense, these people are still kind of living in a compliant child position in the universe. In other words, instead of stepping up to adulthood and saying, you know, I want to go to the Longhorn Steakhouse. You know, they're, they kind of, you know, defer to other people, right? Now, to you people, I said, in order to make a marriage work, much less your life work, much less your job work, much less your parenting work, we need the ability in our lives to have a seat at the table be a player in the game, to have a voice in some way. We need to be shown and taught in relationships that for you to exist and for you to have an opinion or for you to disagree, there's room for that. Okay? I always tell parents when I do parenting, we need to teach children to learn to hear no. There's also this really cool way in which we want to encourage children to say no, especially those compliant little children. You know, say no is such a vital piece. I see people all the time in my office. They have a demanding, controlling spouse, and they have a lot to say about what a jerk the spouse is and how they're always telling them how to drive. And they're always telling them how they don't spend money right or they don't love them well enough. And that's all bad and everything. But I always ask them, 
as they're doing all this he language. What would it be like, you know, if instead of complying with them or being afraid of upsetting them all the time or doing their bidding and then resenting them, what would it be like if, if like, you said to them, I'll, I'll discuss with you. I will work with you. Because certainly what you want matters. But what I want matters too. And we both need to matter in this relationship. And I'm okay talking, but I'm not okay with you ranting at me. All right? In other words, I say to them, this is kind of a brain teaser. What if there were two people in your relationship? <laughs> They're like ready to leave the marriage. This marriage is terrible. And I'm like, well, you know, if it, you might have the best marriage in Tulsa County if it had you in it. Right now, it doesn't have anybody but him in it. Okay? And they say, well, I'll tell you what he would say. He would say, but he'd get all mad. And this person's living their whole life oriented toward this other person being upset. Okay? And that kills marriages as much as bully abusers do. That inability to stand up and be strong. Can you be you? That is an ability we learn. In other words, we need to have a sense of self. And, uh, and this isn't selfishness, by the way. Selfish means only I matter. This is not self-focused. You know, people talk about psychologists like, oh, that focus on self. It's not self-focus. It's, um, <clears throat> biblically speaking, it's stewardship. In other words, can I know what I believe, what I stand for, and stand for it and make choices based on that? When Joshua's leading the people in the promised land, he stops him and he goes, look, you guys got to choose ye this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my family, we're going to serve Yahweh. Choose ye this day. You got to have a ye. Joshua's saying, reach inside. Can you let you be you? What are you going to value? What do you believe? A lot of people do not know. And it does all sorts of havoc in their marriage. And they wonder, I might have a bad marriage. No, you're missing this piece. Do you see where I'm taking you? I'm going to dissect your marriage and look at the pieces that you need to make relationship work and that your spouse may need or may lack and look at those as the issue. Not that you have a bad marriage, okay? By the way, another version of this can't-be-me thing, besides doormats, is passivity. <laughs> the nice person sin. Right? Passive people are basically people who don't live out of any personal initiation. I don't initiate to create things in my life. So you are always having to initiate everything. Their spouse is the one who initiates. They're the one saying, have you remembered to call the plumber? Or their spouse is the one who's always having to swing back in and say, we need to pick back up. Talking about that fight we had last night. Their spouse is the one who always has to initiate sex. In other words, the passive person isn't creating anything in their life. And that will make your spouse crazy. Okay? It will make them crazy because it puts them in a really nasty double bind. The double bind is this. What are their options if you're passive? If you do not initiate, if you don't say, hey, here's John and let's work toward this. If you're passive and don't initiate, their options are either to do nothing, which means nothing will happen, right? Because you're passive. Or to swing in and do something, which makes something happen and enables you to stay passive. So it's a nasty double bind for your spouse. So if you're a passive person, take a look at that, which requires some initiative, which is exactly what you can't do. Which is why passive passivity is a really hard thing to fix, all right? Okay, so who do the doormats marry? Can I be, I, I don't know if I can be me, often tend to marry 
I can't let you be you. The only thing in the universe that matters is me. All right? And whereas they tend to marry Mr. and Miss Too Much Me. If you don't like it, tough. There's the door. All right? So the next question is, can I make room for you to be you, or does the whole universe have to revolve around me? The can't-be-me people can't say no. These people can't hear no. All right? They can't bend the knee. They can't make room for someone else in the relationship. Now, spiritually speaking, our sin nature kind of makes this one tougher. All right? Because, you know, basically... Our sin nature means that we're all born and hold a board meeting and elect ourselves chairman, right? Um, so we're kind of swimming against the grain on this one. Can I bend the knee and make room for other people? But it's vital that we have it. I have a, a couple I saw a few years back, and um, he literally had never had anyone say no to him his entire life growing up. He was like the little prince. And so his wife... There was no room for her in the relationship. And when she did push back or say no or disagree, he was literally confused. And like, you disagree with moi? You know? So anyway, of course, he didn't initially come to therapy. She did. In other words, these people rarely come to therapy. They cause their loved ones to come to therapy. Okay. Um, so she comes to therapy like, I don't have a life. I'm run by the little Prince Faulkner boy, and it's driving me crazy, and I want to leave him. And I tell her, like I told the other one, like, well, I wonder what your marriage would look like if you had you in it. So she starts to develop more of a sense of self, like, I get to matter here, too. I'm not going to take over, but we're going to create mutuality. We both exist here. Well... That got him to therapy. <laughs> I was not one of his Facebook friends. <laughs> he was not really happy with me. Anyway, be reflecting on, could this be one of your blind spots? How good are you at making room for someone else to be them? For them to say no to you, to be different from you. For them to have a messy car when yours is all nice and shiny, you know? Or when someone comes to you and says, the way you talked to me felt bad. Do we immediately go, what are you talking about? Or do we have room for someone else to have an opinion? Can we be that strong? This is the spiritual ability of submission, mutual submission that we read about. But can I bend the knee and make room for other people? Now, at this point, hear me on this, you doormats. Because doormats often marry more controlling people. These often pair up, all right? People who live like this controlling person need you to set strong limits on them. They need you to stand up to them. I am one of these controlling people. I like things my way. I know what I want and I say it. And we need you to set limits on us so we don't steamroll you, okay? If this marriage is going to work, you've got to exist in it, all right? If we begin a sentence that says something like, why'd you invite them to the party? And you go chicken little and say, well, I thought you liked them. I thought you were friends for work and all that. It's over. <laughs> you need to say, uh, I'm not really sure if that was a question or a criticism. Which one do you think it was? <laughs> if you're really asking the question why I invited him to the party, I will tell you. 
But it didn't sound like that. It sounded like you were jumping on me like a challenge and I'm supposed to dance, monkey dance, and I'm not doing that anymore. My therapist, John Cox, is teaching me. <laughs> That's a good, powerful, loving limit on our controllingness and jerkiness. And we might get mad at you when you don't comply with us, but it's the only way that marriage is going to thrive. That's what a, that kind of relationship needs first, not more love. Right? It's the only way to have a marriage with an alpha. Hear me once and hear me twice. This is why the stereotypical Christian response to the to the um, wife who lives with a bully husband, you know, go back and submit more, doesn't work. Alright? Growth for a controller, love for a controller always means setting hard limits. I love you, but you can't rant at me. Alright? I do this all the time. It's so neglected in marriages. It's so neglected in the Christian community. And it wreaks havoc. Okay? By the way, here's a joke. Speaking of these people. Uh, knock, knock. He's there. Uh, um, control freak. Now, what you're supposed to say is control freak, too. Anyway, to do all of that, you've got to have a you. Okay. Now tomorrow we're going to address the conflict that having a you is going to inevitably create. But conflict is good. Okay, you doormats, you heard it here first. All right. Now again, if you can't do these things, admit it. Usually, us controller types don't tend to admit it, um, and you'll have to do a little work on us. But by the way, let me touch on something here, and we'll take a little break and come back and finish in a minute. Um, I am, I am um, presupposing, in a sense, this talk and a lot of this conference is, is presupposing that both of you are more or less repentant. And what I mean by that is both of you more or less are like, yeah, I'm going to work on our marriage. Okay? Um, that one of you isn't like, get away from me with all that psychobabble stuff. I'll yell at you if I want. You know? I'm assuming that both of you are more or less repentant. But what if one of you is not? And all of us are underpinned about something, right? All of us are controlling jerky people about something. Um, but if you're sitting out there going, wow, this sounds great, let's be together, no longer enemies, let's grow together, my spouse doesn't care. All right? To you, I say there is hope, do not worry. This is a very interesting phenomenon, and I do it all the time. But if you yourself grow, Regardless of your spouse, if you look at these, these collection of abilities and search yourself and look for the places you need to grow and grow there, it will imbalance your marriage system and your spouse will change without even knowing they're changing 90% of the time. Okay? And the reason that is is because a marriage is kind of like a baby mobile. Think about a baby mobile. It's, you know, hanging there. It's like little Noah's arcs or something hanging from it. All right? So what happens if you cut one of the little Noah's arcs off? The whole baby mobile shifts. Marriages are like that. And I cannot tell you how many spouses I see come to my office and say, yeah, she won't come. She says you're a quack. You know? And I'm like, that's cool. Let's do our work and she will change. And they're like, what? Anyway, I always find that spouse cool areas where they need to grow. Ways in which they're letting the bully get away with stuff. Um, 
we can talk more about this tomorrow with conflict, or, or we can talk about this at any point if you want to talk about what to do with an unrepentant issue in a spouse. Um, that's why I have my little phone number in there, by the way. Um, that phone number is my Google Voice number, and it's not for you to text, hey, what are your favorite marriage books? It's for you to text stuff that's anonymous. It's for you to text something you can't raise your hand and say. It's for a private question. Otherwise, we'll do Q&A with hands raised. But you can't go, what if your husband's like a total rageaholic? And he's sitting there like, you know. <laughs> So I want you to have a way in which you can ask me questions about an underpinning or jerky issue with your spouse. But um, don't forget the baby minimal. If you're in a relationship and your spouse doesn't care, do not despair. To the degree that you start thinking about these things this way, where can I grow? We're going to talk later about the growth places, where and how we grow. Your relationship will change. And nobody ever believes it, but it's true. I'd say 90% of the time. I even made a bet with a lady once. She goes, there's no way this is going to work. And I said, I'll bet you. I said, your husband doesn't change. I'll give you a free session. He does change. You buy me dinner for two for me and my wife at so-and-so restaurant. And about six months later, she just comes in and goes, Slaps his gift certificate. Oh yeah. Alright. So do, do not despair. There's so much power in your own growth. Okay? I think that's some of what Peter means by winning over without a word. Do your own growth. If people live with Jesus, they're gonna change whether they want to or not. That should be your focus. Get us off that he she language. I can't do it because he won't go. Alright, that'll kill you. I want you to be going, how do I grow? Teach me. How do I? I had a client last week. All he does is moan and groan about what his wife is like. And he came in last week and he said, she's been doing all sorts of crazy stuff this week. And I realized I don't really know how to handle things well when she does that. And I wanted to throw a little party with a mariachi band, you know, and little umbrella drinks and stuff. Because now this guy could change. He was asking the right questions, all right? All right, let's take a break there for 10 minutes. Can y'all do 10 minutes? And we'll come back and finish up. <coughs> you see what I mean when I tell you I have a little bit different approach to doing a marriage conference? Um, what, what we're talking about here, in, in, in my view, is the heart. And the job of a Christian psychologist is to sort of Take what God tells us about humans in Scripture, learn what we can about how people function, kind of operationalize that and expand it and take it apart and make sense of it kind of at a practical level. So what is the human heart? What are the things that God calls us to? As we're going along here, you will notice, and as we hit the next two, you will really notice the things that make life work, the abilities we need characterologically to function and not bear bad fruit, are the same things God calls us to. Love, um, steadfastness, and faithfulness. And number three, we're going to look at forgiveness and making sense of imperfection next. Um, and that would make sense, right? That the things that the psychologist finds out are the things that humans need to function would be the things that God called us to all along, right? That shouldn't surprise us. Anyway, so what makes... You have struggles in your life or issues in your heart. Out of your heart flow the issues of life. So I want you to understand how hearts work. I want you to have a category for what might be missing in both of your hearts. And I want you to get on the same team together and with your body of Christ.
to grow there. As you do that, you will produce good fruit. All right, number three. Third, I imperfection. In other words, dealing with the yuckiness in life. Remember the ordeal? Now, this is a tough one. How do we make sense of how painful fallen life is? How do we make sense of how fallen I am? This is the only one of the four we're going to look at that God did not create us to need to do. Remember, we were created to live in perfection. We were created to not have any sense of making sense of good and evil. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and messed everything up. So now we have to make sense of something we're fish out of water about. That's why everybody struggles and protests against pain. This is why every one of us is ashamed to be have our our, our failings exposed because we're all born under the law, so to speak. We're all born broken in this one, all right? So bring that to your marriage and, you know, it's the walk and talk and reason to rehabilitate. So one of the things we have to have is people who love us and walk with us in our growth and help us develop the ability to make sense of, to, to metabolize the fact that everything on this planet that's not a Facebook post is a mess, all right? And your spouse is not everything you dream. And we're not going to talk about what a carnival cruise it is to live with you, all right? <laughs> but there's pain, there's loss, and there's sorrow. And as we said, paradoxically, a lot more sorrow gets formed by the cockamamie ways in which we respond to our sorrow, usually by being jerks which takes one marriage problem and makes it two. Now life stinks and I'm being nasty about it, all right? That's kind of where we started, right? But for our life or our relationships or our dating or whatever to work, we need to be taught and shown, as children preferably, but it's not too late, how to engage failure and loss and sorrow and pain and, and stay grounded in love and stay grounded in strength. What most of us do is we move to some sort of position of protest. So, what we need is two abilities. Can I forgive you? In other words, can I make sense of and reach some level of peace with the fact that the world is fallen and you're fallen and I don't live in that position of protest. I can't believe you're so X, Y, Z. And secondly, can I forgive me? Can I have some category inside of me for it being safe that I'm fallen? All right? And notice I didn't say okay. You know, the psychobabble psychologist says, you're screwed up and sinful and bad and it's okay. It's not okay. You can look at the cross and see it's not okay. But because the cross is safe. Have we learned that place that it's safe for me to be fallen, for you to see my junk and love can be bigger than that. All right? Let me give you some examples. Ways in which life can feel yucky. And I want you to kind of try them on. I hadn't seen my grandbaby for several weeks a while back. And I was complaining about that to my wife. Oh, Miss Witt, I hadn't seen him. She goes, well, I'm keeping him tomorrow afternoon. She's coming home right after work. His mother's going to come get him. But you'll overlap. Just, you know, get home and you can see him like, yes. So I, I see clocks back to back. And if you get late, you stay late. So I'm like, you know, see my one o'clock. It's 10 till. It's like, go, 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 go. You know, the next, see my 2 o'clock. All right, go, go, go. You know, I'm like staying on time. Work in the afternoon. Spend my whole afternoon organized around staying on time. It's like, tell them I'll return that call later. I got to stay on time. I get in the car, headed home. 
It's, you know, five minutes to five. Call my wife. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And she says, oh, I changed my mind. I'm not going to be Do you feel that? <laughs> what do you want to say to her? <laughs> you feel it? That's what life feels like, right? That's what marriage feels like. How hard is it? What do you have to have inside of you to not go, you what? Do you understand how I organize my whole afternoon? That's what we do, right? Have we developed the ability to feel sorrow, loss, hurt, disappointment, grieve? No, I'm serious. We'll do a mini conference on grieving at some time during Q&A. Grieving is overlooked. Our culture, we rarely talk about grieving, and we, when we do, it's something to be avoided. But God has created us to have this gift. If you can engage loss and feel sad about it, something inside of you will change. You can feel angry forever. You can feel depressed forever. And you can feel anxious forever. But if you feel sorrow... If I could sit and feel sad how much I wanted to see my grandson and I didn't get that. Instead of getting in protest or attack her. If you can move to grief, if you're taught that love is present and that grief is possible, what happens is the, the sorrow melts. And I can say to my wife, that hurt me so much. I wanted to see him so bad. And she can go, oh my gosh, I get it. I totally screwed you over. And if you can not get blamey when someone hurts you, and they cannot get defensive when they hurt you, and you bring your sorrow and they hear it, you don't just get back to a net zero. Your relationship gets better. Right. And grief actually takes the sorrow that's there and softens it. My brother died 29 years ago. Um, and I couldn't talk to you about it. 29 years ago, but I can now. Why? I love him less? No. Grief has done its work. Now I think about him, and I, I feel teary, but it's teary out of love. I love him. He still loves me, by the way. Grief does the thing. We need to do a whole conference on it. Don't get me started. I want to write a book on it. But, but I want to call the book, There's Just Not Enough Sadness in This World. You know how you get depressed? You stop letting yourself feel sad. Sadness heals depression. But I'm going way afield. We can cover these more in Q&A if you want. What do we do when, when, we, when we have real loss? I have a couple right now, and she's dying of cancer. And they're in so much turmoil, and they take out their pain and their, their loss and their fear on each other. It's so hard to get them to look into the eyes of that darkness. How about a real betrayal? What do we do when we are hurt? This is an ability, and it's a hard one. We can talk more. I don't have time to unpack all that goes into learning to resolve this, but we can if y'all want later on. I just want to hit the high points at this point. But we need love in our hearts and a sense of groundedness in our hearts and that ability to grieve if we're going to manage this huge area of growth. Okay? I always say, and my wife hates it when I say this, but it's true. The best of marriages are an exercise in disappointment, all right? Imagine how you are not all that I dreamed, of course, because I'm perfect. Um, <coughs> well, I, I will say this. What is one of the reasons we can get stuck in being overly 
focused on how things are, things being the way I want. Here's a way of looking at it. Humans live having two questions. This is just a model for understanding why we can be perfectionistic or pitch a fit when we don't get our way. Humans live having two questions. Number one, how loved am I? How grounded am I living? And the most important thing to me is I am loved and I feel it. It feels good. I feel loved. And question number two is how are my circumstances? How are things going in my life? Now, here's what humans will do. If I don't have really good answers to question number one, what we all do is we load up question number two with all of our mojo, and our life will be contingent on the circumstances. This is one of the reasons people get anxiety, too. Oh, my gosh, so-and-so might happen. Oh, my gosh, that plate had raw chicken on it. Oh, my gosh, you, you know, airplane travel is dangerous. You know, they're living with all of their groundedness on what might happen. Push she got on, you know? And one of the ways you help someone with chronic anxiety is, let's get you grounded in love. Whatever happens, whatever happens, can you feel how grounded in love you are? And you get people grounded in love and circumstances lose their weight. Same thing with perfectionism, protest, forgiveness. To the degree that I am living grounded in love, I don't have to beat them up for not bringing the grandbaby home. Mm -hmm. Right? My life is a contingent on that circumstance. Anyway. We can talk more about that. It's a little bit of a problem, right? This obviously has huge impact on the whole issue of forgiving an injury. Um, Mike preached well on that this summer, I think. Um, but otherwise, it's very often a neglected topic in the Christian community. The complexities of forgiveness. How do you actually let go of a loss? What do you do with that? How do I stop living in a position of holding that against you? Obviously. So do I have the ability to forgive you and the universe for stinking? All right. Again, I've touched on a lot of little topics I want to invite you all to come back to during Q&A as we have time. But I want you to get the model tonight. All right. Secondly, can I forgive me? In other words, can I take in grace? All right. This is for the people who live in the perfectionistic rat race. Everything has to be just right. Or the perfectionistic Christian rat race, you know, I have to be just right, you know. Or people who you can't have people over because they, you know, unless the house looks like a garden and gun photo shoot because it has to be just right, you know. Or the people who don't want you to really know me because I'm kind of badder than other people, you know. Or I live as a chameleon because I don't want my spouse upset. I'll do whatever they want, all right. Or singles who nitpick themselves to death. You know, if I was cuter, I'd be married. This is that issue of what do I do with my own fallenness and imperfection. Huge thing we got to have given to us. Were we given the ability to someone teach us that I can feel forgiven, that I can take in grace? At some point in our lives, in order for this to happen, someone has to see me, real me, like warts and all. They see me and their eyes don't fall. They go, I'm, I'm screwed up too, man. Welcome to the club. Different screwed up than you, but screwed up too. And love starts to conquer that fallenness. You know that experience where, like, you can, people say this to me all the time. I know I'm forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven. You know that phenomenon? Um, I know I shouldn't be ugly to my wife, but I still am. You know, I call that the head-heart gap. I know that I shouldn't be anxious, that God's in control, but I'm anxious all the time. 
I feel like God's asleep at the switch, you know. But what I, I know, you know, not a sparrow falls, but the, but I don't feel it. I call that the head heart gap, and it's actually one of the things that got me into psychology in the first place. Was how is it that we can know all this stuff but we don't feel it in our gut? Well, I'll tell you the answer. It took me like ten years to figure this out, and I'm just gonna tell you. All right, for crying out loud. You just show up at a hotel in Tulsa, find out the secret of the universe. Right? The secret is this you learn stuff in your head from reading, talking, watching, listening, cognitive learning. You learn stuff in your head. You read somewhere that, that you are forgiven. But we learn stuff in our gut, our heart, through what we experience relationally. And this is going to become incredibly important for us later on this evening. But one of the questions I ask that person who says, I know I'm forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven, is I say, well, have you ever really hurt somebody and let them down and screwed up, and you looked them in the eye and you say, I let you down, and they go, yes, you did, and it hurt me. And you go, will you forgive me? I really screwed up. And they say, yeah, I did. And every one of them goes, no way, man. Never done that. And so they're wondering how they're supposed to feel forgiven by God if they've never had that experience with another person. They're like, no, when we screwed up, Mom wouldn't talk to you for three days, you know. The sun went behind the clouds, you know. <laughs> anyway, we learn grace inside of us by experiencing it, which is going to be really important in a little bit, all right? Only then is there room for me to disappoint other people and that be safe. Or to see that my spouse is angry and not need to freak out and please them. You know the whole saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Well, I say we just let mama be unhappy, so. <laughs> May help her grow a little bit, right? <laughs> Otherwise, in a lot of people's lives, you will become their slave. And you run that forward in time, and what we see is that little Miss Good, who's done everything to please her spouse all along, at some point... So often you see them just snap or break or leave or get depressed or have an affair. And it's like, I'm sick of being a little Miss Good. And we all go, oh my gosh, what's happening to marriages nowadays? Well, what happened is that 25 years ago, little Miss Good didn't say, you're having a tantrum and I'm sorry, but I'm getting out of your blast radius, pal. And the answer is still no. Okay? If you live in that compliant place of being afraid of upsetting people, ultimately it'll come back and bite you. So get it, having these abilities is what makes marriage and life possible. Not having them, it's hasta lasagna, don't get any onion, all right? This isn't just about learning to communicate better, all right? Now, if I didn't manage to get you with the first three, which I doubt, I'm going to get you with this one, because none of us do this one well, all right? This is the Cuban baby. This is the Kiba. This is the Monte Cristo. None of us do this one. Number four, impulse control or emotional management. Bottom line, if you want to understand the way and why humans act the way that we do, you've got to understand the amount of power that emotion has in people's lives. Emotion runs us. All right? If you start paying attention, you will see it. Think about the stock market. Economic indicators, my hind leg. What runs the stock market? Emotion, fear, and greed. Oh my gosh, it's going up. I want to make more. Oh my gosh, it's going down. I'm scared now. Sell it. Okay? At least they have the dignity to call it market sentiment. And thank you. It is sentiment. All right? 
Um, our culture, um, both sides of the political framework, the street protesters or those who walk out on the speaker, um, you know, we react to our emotion, you know, protest or tweets from Trump, whatever his latest reactive treat, uh, tweet is. Our culture is about 13 years old emotionally, right? <laughs> it is. We live in junior high with nuclear, you know, nuclear junior high. Everything has been going on. It's junior high. There is an adult emotion in it. For us personally, why you can't stay on a diet? It's emotion. Because you go, man, I'm really going to stay on a diet this time. But then you go out to dinner with your friends, and they're all getting like biggie super cheeseburgers with fries and like chili on it and all that. And you're getting the grilled chicken salad. And what do you feel? Oh, my gosh. That burger looks so good. Deprivation, loss. I don't want to not get that burger. And you go, okay, well, I'm going to get the burger. Now, what happened is you couldn't manage that emotion. All right? So, huge issue in marriage is can we have an emotion and think about it and not need to react? Can I think? And the flip side of that is can I bring my emotions into the relationship? Like the can't let you in people. Sometimes people just can't let their emotions be part of the world. But I want to focus mostly on can I think, all right? Or do I, do I just be reactive? This is a hallmark of adulthood, the ability to feel something and not necessarily need to act on it. Now, it goes like this. We begin our lives as children, right? And children are concrete thinkers. And children are concrete feelers. Children don't feel their feelings. They do their feelings. When children feel something, their feeling is a thing. When you're mad at them, they're afraid you're going to hurt them. When they feel bad, they feel like they are bad. With a child, if you don't get them the bubblicious at the checkout counter, they don't go, wow, you know, that's so sad to me, Mom. Because I really want to go, yeah, they do their feelings, right? <laughs> or you push them down the, on, the, on the playground, and they do their feelings. They're either going to punch you in the nose or run away. They're going to do their feelings. Now, somewhere between then and adulthood, something happens to where some guy can cut you off on the interstate, and you say, man, I'd like to run into the back of that guy and teach him a lesson. And you don't. <laughs> Something happened, right? Right? God made us to where in order to do marriage well and obedience well, this is a big one on obedience, we need to be strong enough and have the capacity to talk to us inside to have our emotions and not necessarily have to act on them huge adult principle. Or as we used to tell our children, you can be angry, but you can't hit you sin. Or as God says, you can be angry, but sin not. Alright? Huge dynamic for marriage. I had a couple in my office a while back, and she comes in the door. I've seen a while, we were kind of, you know, we had a good relationship. She comes in the door talking about this James Dobson article she, she read. She's talking to me. She goes, I read the most interesting James Dobson article. He was talking about how for homemakers, they need a special kind of affirmation because, you know, think about it. Their task is never done. You know, as soon as you finish washing the clothes, they're making more dirty ones. You know, there's never the sense of like, hey, we finished the project at work. So there's a special kind of affirmation they need, you know, because of this never-ending task. And I thought it was kind of an interesting thing. Now, her husband is completely run by his feelings. And I can see the look on his face as he's telling me this. He's making this all about him. He's starting to get angrier and angrier. What he's hearing is he doesn't affirm her enough. He's no good. He's not being a good husband. 
And those were feelings he was having. But instead of backing up and going, whoa, slick, something about that really triggered me. I want to yell and scream. He just goes off on her and goes, why well, don't you don't appreciate me either. Nothing's ever good enough for you. And, you know, all I do is work. And we're like, holy Toledo, you know. Sun's going down, big guy. Sun's going down, you know. But you see, this entire interaction for him was run by his emotion, okay? Y'all ever do this kind of thing? Yeah, we got a regular crowd, all right. So, I'm scared and angry about how you spent money, or I'm hurt because I wanted sexuality with you and you didn't, or I'm angry that you didn't bring the grandbaby, whatever. Can I have that emotional consciousness, all right? If you can't back up and think about what you are doing and may and decide what you're going to do with your feelings, then the feelings themselves will make that decision for you. And I guarantee you those decisions will be unfortunate ones. Okay? I always tell couples, we'll talk about this tomorrow, more tomorrow too, I always tell couples that marriage interactions should be golf, not tennis. You know? Usually in marriage, it's like our spouse says something, and we're like, oh yeah, top fit forehand back at you, you know? <laughs> I want him to say something. This is golf. You know? Just slow it down. See how the green breaks. Like, what did she mean by that? <laughs> grass. Sprinkle it. Ask your caddy. You know, what do you want to do with this? Bad news is, they're, and good news is, they're not going anywhere. You've got plenty of time, all right? So don't rush it. Don't just slow it down. Be cool, all right? Like two little Fonzies. What's Fonzie like? He's cool. Anybody know what that's from? The Rectum Mundo. I want you to be a two little Fonzies, all right? So, slowing it down. Emotional consciousness. This is going to be big in our conflict talk, all right? Now, on the other side, can I feel? You know the people who just shut their emotional part off. It's kind of like the let you in, so I'm going to skim over this. You know, they're kind of the Mr. Spock, John Wayne, and, you know, that's cool. Lone gunslinger type, whatever. Problem is with that is you miss the heart of other people and they miss yours, and God's going to feel like kind of a concept, and your spouse is going to feel lonely and probably tell you about that, you know. So that's not a marriage problem. That's a software problem, okay? So we need to learn to have the ability to let feelings be part of the relationship, too, can I feel? We can grow here in that one, of course. Uh, I have a couple a while back who, um, he was really learning, man, I'm really not any good at the emotional world. And he was really wanting to grow, and he was doing good growth. It was cool. One day he comes in, and he said, yeah, I've really been trying to like learn more about this whole sharing my emotions thing. So, honey, I got you a card. And he hands it to her in the session, and she opens it up, and it says, this is just a little card to let you know how I feel. And she opens it up and says, I feel fine. <laughs> All right, so you're done. These are the basic building blocks of your character, of your heart, of your life, of your marriage, of your relationship. And again, see how much they parallel the image of God. Love and, and, and um, stewardship and steadfastness and forgiveness and humility and getting the log out of your eye and managing my impulses and obedience Waiting upon the Lord, this, the tension of doing what is right against what's driving you. 
All these pieces are part of being in his image. And life's going to work well to the degree that we have them. We're going to serve God well to the degree that we have them. Marriage works to the degree that we have them. And as I said, symptoms come from not having them. Depression, anxiety, whatever. The question I ask as a therapist is, which one of these is missing? Not why are you depressed, right? So, I want you to use these to diagnose your marriage and your dating, okay? As you go through these, you might see one or two you're not so good at. The advanced students see all four you're not so good at, all right? Either way, I don't care, you're normal. Now bring those into the marriage, you can see why my secret of the universe for the evening is that, that the problem is not your marriage. The problem is that you're missing some pieces. You both are. Let's be friends about it. Great topic for date night. I want you to talk about these categories. I want you to go, you know that whole letting you in thing? That's what you've been trying to tell me, right? Or that forgiving myself thing? I can't do that. I think that's why I've become a raven maniac when you point out my flaws. I think this makes sense. I want you to use these categories. But mostly, I want you to do that as friends, not enemies. You're both incomplete. All right? I want that orientation in your dating. I want that orientation in your marriage. Because there's one more category that actually supersedes every one of them. And you've heard it in the background of everything I've been saying. And that is, whether we're talking about spirituality or marriage or whatever... An attitude and orientation of humility and repentance. You've heard it in everything I've said. That position that says, yeah, I'm broken. I'm a mess. I want to grow. Right? That position where you can stop saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Namely, him. You know? Just like that's the beginning point of your faith, that is the beginning point of your marriage. We've run to the altar in our faith. Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm terrible, and I want your forgiveness. But in our marriage, we're like, uh-uh, not me. It's you. All right? If we begin in our marriage at the same place that Christ begins, we start to grow. Singles will come up, and they'll go, you know, all these character abilities. How am I ever going to find someone who has all of these abilities? Well, you can. There's just one. And he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, all right? Otherwise, find somebody who has just this one. Right? <laughs> and he's a Neanderthal emotionally, but he knows even that he's a Neanderthal, alright? Marry that Neanderthal. He can grow. So if you're humble, if you're willing to say, yeah man, I got problems, blind spots and all those, cool. I can take you to school. You can learn. If you still need to be in the, no, I'm the right one, I'm the good one, it's their fault position, then Jesus says basically enjoy that a lot because that's your reward in full. That's as good as it gets. Is you get to be the right one, all right? The rest of us, we're screwed up, all right? And if your spouse is not humble and repentant, don't despair. Remember the baby moment. Now, that's, that's our character software. That's our hearts right there. Now, I'm going to touch some, and this hopefully will be fodder for us the rest of our time together, even tomorrow. I'm going to give you a, a flavor for how you grow. I have a whole conference on how you grow here. But let's just do a helicopter ride over Manhattan. How do we grow in these places? What do we need to do? You go get a good book? Well, when we're talking about growing in heart abilities, you've heard me say it over and over again, alluded to this evening, God created us to where we develop these abilities in the context of relationship. In other words, you do not do heart growth with a self-help book.
love that term self-help. I'm the last person I want helping me. Thank you very much. But remember our don't feel forgiven guy? What happens with that guy is as he starts to tell me his junk, as he starts to be broken, busted up, screwed up him with me, he'll often say something like, man, you must be sitting there thinking, God, this guy's a total screwed up mess. And I go, hey, that's what I'm thinking. Do you want to know what I'm thinking? And he said, well, you got to say some therapy answer. And I'm like, really? You think I'm like a rent-a-friend? <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. He goes, okay, what are you thinking about me? And I said, I'm thinking that uh, it's kind of nice to be with somebody who's as screwed up as me, to be honest with you. One of the nice things about my job is sometimes when I'm by myself, I think I must be the most screwed up person in the world. And then I get to hang out with somebody like you. <laughs> <laughs> Brother from the same model. Brother from a different model. We learn identity as we are seen and drawn close. We learn, we learn intimacy as we are seen and drawn close. We learn identity as we are respected. We learn forgiveness as our yuck is seen and we, we see these people stand by us. A relationship. That's why God gave us parents, because that's a developmental relationship. And it's why he gives us the body of Christ. It's why he gives us each other. It's why it gives us what I call the second family. Blake was preaching about community of all that too. How God calls us to be one together. This is where we grow. I mean, God knows that none of us have completed all of this development in childhood, right? And he knows that the only place we're going to get this is in relationship, right? He's smart, right? So he gives us more relationship. He gives us new relationships. Your development does not stop in childhood. The body of Christ is a developmental relationship, just like parents are, just like therapists are. Small groups, pastors, mentors, safe friends. These are the places where we grow. Why are there all those each others in the New Testament? It's not because Paul is just telling us to be nice to each other. They're there because how we treat each other, what we experience, heart-head dilemma, remember? What we experience will change us for better or for worse. So Paul has a lot to say about how we treat each other. What you do when you see my failings is going to change me. And if you respond to me with grace and with love and with gentleness and with humility, I'm going to heal. And if you scorn me or Bible verse me or gossip about me, it will harm me. And I will withdraw and shut down. We have this responsibility and this power. Okay? This is why fellowship is one of the means of grace. You guys know the means of grace? You go to Sunday school? You know, the, the things that the church historically has told us draw us closer to God. Uh, Bible, prayer, uh, worship, sacraments, and fellowship. It's a means of grace. It's always listed last. It's kind of the redheaded stepchild of the means of grace. Okay? But it should be at the top of the list because nothing changes the heart more powerfully. All right? Well, our culture has turned fellowship into, you know, free time between Sunday school and church. You know, a little fellowship time. <laughs> or, you know, your Sunday school teacher doesn't show up. So it's okay, we'll have a fellowship Sunday. No, what a fellowship is is the process where we, as a culture, as a little inner culture of the church, start building community and becoming the kind of community 
For we are safe and we are loving and we're truth-telling and we're not gossipers. We keep confidence and we start bringing our junk into relationship. And I come to you, my buddies, who I've learned will tell me the truth and I've learned will show me grace and who I've learned will be loving to me. And I say, guys, I am so afraid of failing at work. And you go, tell me about it, John. What's it like? We want to love you there. You told us about your dad. It's terrifying to fail with him. We're going to be a new place for you. You can fail with us. And we got your back. And we're going to be your cheerleaders. And you start learning in new relationship how to grow that. That's why therapy works. Therapy doesn't work because of the amazing brilliance of Dr. John L. Cox. Therapy works because when we bring broken parts of us into relationship, they get better. And parts of us that live in secret will never change. God made us that way. We need these. We need people in our life. Now, historically, the church understood this. Historically, culture understood this. If you read the, the Puritans, they say things like, and Brother Bartholomew was taken with a grave melancholia, and so we attended his home and blessed him with spiritual hymns and songs. And I'm like, wow. Okay, so Brother Bartholomew's depressed, right? Grave melancholia. So what would you do if you were depressed and we all came over to your house after church and loved on you? That's what they used to do. I wouldn't need Lexapro either. Our culture lost this. About the time, the reason that therapy appears on the scene about the same time as the uh, automobile is because around the time of the Industrial Revolution, we lost that culture of, of, of community. And we go isolated and we celebrate holidays with just your family. And we turn marriage into this special little place where I'm going to get all my needs met. And no wonder we struggle. All right? Our culture doesn't do this anymore. So, my friends, we need to create another culture. It's called the church. And everywhere I go, I call people to this. Your body needs to be a place where you start taking seriously. What does it look like to be gracious to one another, but truth-telling? To not tell a soul when someone shares their heart. Not even your wife. I can tell you you're my wife. No, you can't. I've invited your wife for beers if I wanted her to know. <laughs> as long as, why is gossip included in the as one of the worst sins? You go read Romans one. It's like you know, and they are murderers and slanderers and adulterers and gossips and haters of God. And it's like wow, my supper club made it into the pink. <laughs> wow. Why is that? Well, because what's going to happen to me if I know you're going to gossip about me? I will never share my heart. And where will I never, ever get better? Alone. Gossip makes sure that the church will never grow. That's why it's listed with those villainous sins. I want us to be thinking about this. And churches I go to, people look at me like y'all are looking at me like going, yes. How do we do that? We want to do that. Yes. It's going to take a generation for us to create it. But let's store it. And it can just start with a friend, somebody who you trust to start telling the truth to. All right? Small group ministry. Build in a small group that says, hey, you want to be a place where we grow, guys? And not just talk about, you know, today's Bible verse. Let's talk about what today's Bible verse meant to you. <coughs> Let's talk about what it touched your heart. And you start bringing that stuff to your people. And they're like, man, your kid's in the hospital and you're like slinging out prayer requests. Where's your heart, buddy? We want to know it. 
Are you saying I'm afraid to stand up and say no to my wife? She gets so mad. And, the, and they're like, look, we're your cheerleaders. We're going to hold you accountable. We're also going to help you when she's mad. And you see this sense of self start to develop. And you throw that back into the baby mobile and you see things change. Right? I see churches all over the place doing this. And it's working. So let's stop there and do some questions. Um, this is my model for the things that people need in their heart to be whole. Missing pieces there, you have marriage problems and everything problems, all right? And the place we grow is in community. Why therapy works, it's why small groups work. Not magic. God created us to grow in relationship. Questions? And I'll check my confidential questions to you. I'd rather do one on the floor first. Anybody got one? If you have questions, let me know and I'll pass the mic around after I turn it down. Somebody's going to break the ice. In the back. Uh, or right here. What's the difference between sadness and depression? What's the difference between sadness and depression? Great, great question. Ooh, I'm going to get this report. Hang on. There's a sense in which sadness is the opposite of depression, as I said. Let me tell you how depression works a lot of the time. Of course, there are chemical aspects to it, but I've yet to see somebody whose character is in perfect working order and just their chemicals are messed up. There's almost always a characterological piece missing. So here's the way depression often works. I'm dealing with some pain. I'm dealing with some sorrow. I'm dealing with some loss. Um, maybe I'm not able to do intimacy, and that hurts me so much. I'm very alone. Or I can't be me in the world, and so I feel very powerless. I feel anxious. I can't be strong and be me. Maybe I'm burdened by shame. I can't fail without feeling terrible. Um, maybe I am destroying my life with impulses I can't control. You can pick a card, any card there, but there's some pain. Maybe it's even just circumstantial pain. There's been loss or death or job loss or suffering in some way. Now, one of the things that can happen there is that pain can be so intense and so unpleasant and so bad that we do have the capacity in our hearts to just throw the switch and cut it off, all right? Now, the problem is that human hearts aren't like houses. We don't have a breaker box full of switches in our hearts. We only have one switch. And when you throw the switch to the pain, what happens is you throw the switch to everything. And the resulting feeling is the sort of emptiness, darkness, deadness, nothingness that we call depression. So depression is actually the result of something in me shutting that emotion down. And so I shut every emotion down, which makes me not able to feel happy or have energy or whatever. So someone who is depressed has a really interesting dilemma. And that is, either I throw that switch back on and all that pain comes back, and I ain't about to do that. Or I leave the switch thrown and I live in depression. And you can see why they can feel incredibly hopeless. Because it doesn't feel like there's an option. So what's the answer? The answer is, and I don't know exactly why this is so, and I ought to know because it's my job. But for some reason, God made us in such a way that if you bring pain into a relationship that's safe and connected, let's say you bring your pain to me. I feel so much um, fear and vulnerability because I'm afraid to be me in my life. And it's over overwhelming me. Or the pain of, uh, I've lost a child in an illness. 
And you bring that pain into relationship. Something happens that I don't really understand, but it's not good for the man to be alone. And if you bring it into relationship, something about connecting with someone else in that pain makes it faceable. And what I see is a pain that used to would have overflowed me and overwhelmed me. If I sit in that pain with somebody, it, it, the needle pegs up, but it never red lines, and they can hold it. And maybe they just touch it a little bit this week, and they shut it back down. But they touch it again the next week, and that's it. They start to gradually, slowly cut that breaker back on, and they start to face the unfaceable because they're in a relationship, and the breaker can come back on and they stop being depressed. Right? So if I am feeling depressed, oftentimes what needs to happen is for me to be connected enough to allow myself to feel sad. What saddest is, is when I actually engage my loss. I look at my sorrow and I grieve. This is really so. And you will cry. And if you do that, you are actually letting yourself be in the loss. And God says that, you know, people who live in reality on this planet will feel a lot of loss. If you if you face the fallenness of life, you will feel lost. If you say no to your sin, you will feel lost. If Adam and Eve had felt sadness in the garden, we wouldn't be sitting here today. They would have said, oh man, I know we have all these other trees, but that tree, the fruit on that tree looks so good, delightful eyes and profitable make one wise. I want it so bad that we can't have it. Oh, I'm crying. I'm sad. And then they would have moved on because sadness would do its work. But they refused to face sadness. To the degree that you function in the world with your eyes open, say no to sin, deal with real life, losses, disappointments, like me not being able to see my grandbaby, you will feel sad. If you really face life in the most whole way, you might even be called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. If you really live according to the your eyes open to the world of truth. I am just a small creature and I cannot have so much. And if you feel that, you will feel sad. And that is one of the most holy emotions you can feel. It puts you in your place in the universe. And as Jesus says, the good news is, is if you mourn, guess what? You can get comforted. You can't comfort a judge. You can't comfort a mean person. If I had screamed at my wife for not bringing my grandchild, could she have comforted me? But if I could say, I am so sad, I worked all day on one scene. She could go, oh my gosh, I, I get it. I totally, I love you, I care. Sadness leads to that. It has so many healing things to it. But for some reason, humans would almost rather feel anything than feel sad. I'd rather drink alcohol than feel sad, or eat food than feel sad, or look like, you know, uh, who's, who's the guy who's in the stars born right now? Bradley? Cooper. I don't know who like Bradley Cooper than Phil said. Um, you know, I don't do almost anything in Phil said. Um, and, and, and most of our pathology is intense about Phil said. And once people in my office start to feel sad, I'm like mopping up. Our work here is done. So it's this healthy, whole emotion. When we cut it off and shut it down, throw that breaker switch, one of the things that can create is depression. Great question. Very important question. Somebody asked me on the phone, um, 
regarding character abilities, is it learned through our environment or more our own innards, like uh, limitations physically and mentally? This is a little more of an overt hand raiser kind of question, just FYI. I really want this to be reserved for like really private questions. But to answer the question, it's a little of both. You know how your kids come out and they're just different from the get-go? Um, you know, one comes out and they're all like, don't attack the universe. And you kind of need to teach them to be more relational. <laughs> and the other one's all cuddles, but they're afraid to go, you know, conquer the world. We're born with particular bents. And you know, one of the things about personality styles, people say, oh, I'm just an ENEJ or a, you know, a two. You know, that's cool, but people sort of like wrestling their laurels with that. It's like, well, I'm an A, which means I'm a total jerk. So, yeah, I'm an A, what can I say? No, the goal is Christ-likeness. So if you're this problem-solving bottom-liner, cool, learn to relate. If you're this touchy-feely person who has no backbone, get strong. Okay? So whatever your internal bit, this model is to help us kind of fill in our blind spots. Because this is, I think, a model of what the image of God looks like. All right. Shall we give her the mic so we'll get recorded? Uh, just yell because nobody wants to hear that feedback. Okay, so my question is about being grounded in love. And I'm thinking of like a child, like my child is. Yeah. Anxious, fearful, whatever. Yeah. Like, can you just be a real example? Because you're not just going to say, hey, I love you. Right. I mean, or maybe that's all you do. But you're right. talking about. The question about a child who has anxiety and is that related to being rooted and grounded in love is your question. Let's do a mini parenting conference. Let's go. How old is this child? Uh, nine. Nine. Um, His name is Zane. Pardon me? His name is Zane. Zane, the nine-year-old. And um, tell me what he does with um, independence. Tell me what he does with being strong. Oh, he can be independent and strong. All right. He just gets weirded out by certain things, like a bug. Or he doesn't think you're listening to him, and it's, he has slow processing, so it's like, ah. Okay, and, and that turns into anxiety? <coughs> or is it kind of a reactivity? Is it re hand wringing anxiety, like I'm scared something's going to happen to me because of the bug? Or is he more <laughs> reactive? I think something could happen. Something could happen to me. Okay. Where do you think his strength goes then? So it sounds like you're saying he's pretty strong. He can go do independent stuff and handle things. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is what I do at work. In other words, you don't know, and I don't know, and we're learning by asking the right questions. This is how we figure that out. Don't worry about it. You're doing great. You want to keep playing, or yeah, I'll keep playing. <laughs> okay. I'm like sitting by everyone who knows saying well, so I'm like, uh, does someone want to answer for me? <laughs> the reason I ask these questions is this. Is anxiety can come from different areas. Primarily with children, it can come from do I really feel grounded in the love? Do I know that whatever happens, y'all love me? I don't know why, but just talking to y'all, I kind of get a vibe that Zane feels loved. All right? The other question is sometimes kids need empowerment. And that is, especially around, is this new? Has he always been this way? He's always been this way. Reactive, anxious, something bad's gonna happen to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. Probably. 
Anxiety with a kid can be either a sense of um, I'm not feeling really secure, and and what that looks like is when he's anxious, it's like, come here, know this. No matter what happens, you will always have our love. And no matter what hard things happen, you and I will go through them together. And no matter how big that bug is, we will face it together. And that's what the love piece sounds like. But I kind of have a vibe that he's okay with that. The other side with, um, with anxiety is a lot of times it's issues of self and identity and strength. And that looks like this. Mm. A lot of times when kids are about nine years old, they do start coming up with anxieties that we as their parents will find hard to fix. In other words, um, I'm afraid of the weather, or I'm afraid y'all are going to die, yeah. or I'm afraid I won't be able to sleep tonight, or, you know, they're forgetting things all the time. And if you say to a five-year-old, and he says, I'm afraid a tornado's going to hit the house. If you say to a four- or five-year-old, maybe this didn't work for Zane, but if you say to most four- or five-year-olds, no, man, a tornado's not going to hit a house, they're going to go, oh, okay. <laughs> you say to a nine-year-old, no, a tornado's not going to hit the house. He's going to go, well, I just saw Jim Cantori on TV standing in front of a house that got hit by a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> what? I said, that is my Right, exactly, right. So when, when that happens, when you feel that helplessness that you can't talk about their anxiety, that's a sign to stop parenting and start de-parenting. In other words, it's a sign to stop leaning on the we love you, we support you, we'll help you, we rescue you, we'll take care of you, and start leaning more on, well, you know what? That is pretty scary. And tornadoes, bugs, all of them. <laughs> but you know what? You're a strong dude. You can say this, Dad. You're a strong dude, and you know what? Oh, you can handle it. And you know, we love you, and you know, God loves you, and He's looking out for us and taking care of us. And one of the things we have to do as we're growing up, son, is learn to manage that fear and kind of push back on it and go, Fear, you don't get to tell me the story. Fear's a story that we tell ourselves about our future, and you don't have to listen to it. And one of the things I like to do with chronically anxious kids is objectify fear. They're like, I don't want to go to school, I'm scared. I want to go, you know, you got fear and he talks to you. And he tells you stuff like, you know, you're make it school. And I want us to push back on him and go, you know what? You are wrong and you don't get to run my life. And now the kid has an enemy and y'all have a common enemy and you can say the fear, go away. And then he comes home from school and he said, you know what? I told that fear to go away and he did. And you're like, yeah, and you have a party and go get ice cream. And, you know, and so you sort of create this empowerment piece where you're teaching the child um, to accurately see their blind spot. In essence, this kid is saying, I do intimacy really well. I need some pushing here on can I be strong and can I be me and engage the world. And you're going, yes. And children get a lot of their view of themselves from the eyes of their parents. And all their, your eyes going, yeah, you can do it. But I can't. I know you think that, but we know something you don't know. You can't. I bet you can. You show us. But I don't want to. I know you don't. You're going to be strong and do this. You're going to need to do it, actually. Okay? And so you push that empowerment thing. And that child starts to learn, I'm stronger than I thought I was. And that has sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, upward spiral. Okay? Yes? At what point under the identity one does my quest to find the ability to be me? 
bridge so much conflict that I realized I needed to be someone else. Be someone else? Or I think it changed like that. Like my quest is always about me trying to be me. Yeah. At what point do I go? I probably need to change who I am a little bit. That's a great question. Everybody hear it? Yeah. All right, so um, here's the question. <laughs> I am me in the image of God, and he wants me to be me in his image, but what constrains that? Hmm. Well, that's why when I talked about intimacy and then brought up identity, I threw in the word mutuality. Because what we'll talk about tomorrow when we talk about conflict is that most conflict is a win-lose. In other words, I want A, you want B. You want B? That's stupid. That's ridiculous. Don't you see that A and who's going to win? Okay. What healthy mutuality does in a relationship, especially in a marriage, but certainly within the body of Christ and in developmental relationships with your, with your growth people, um, Iron sharpens iron, but it also dulls iron. Sometimes I need to be dull. And I need my friends to go, dude, you could be just kind of in your face blind. That hurt. And I need to listen to that. Or my spouse needs to say, I feel like we're, I know it's you to, you know, want to save money all the time, but our kids need shoes, man. I mean, it'd be great if we went on vacation. And you need to let that stretch you. We'll talk tomorrow about um, we develop self and we develop relationship as we live in mutuality. You matter and I matter, and I let that affect me. Now, that doesn't mean I stop being these, you know. I still want to buy the Maserati. That's me, okay? I'm just going to bend the knee somewhat to you because you think we ought to save money for retirement. Crazy idea. But, you know, I don't lose me. I'm just going to flex and bend the knee to sort of work with you to create mutuality so we both matter. That's not only what love looks like in a relationship, it's also um, going to sanctify me. Is that getting to your question? Great question. Ooh, it's 9.30. I told you I wouldn't take you longer than this. Uh, we'll have a lot more time for questions tomorrow. A lot. So, um, this is as hard as it gets. I'm pushing y'all, I'm working y'all tonight because I want you to get the big picture. And y'all hung with me really well. Thank you very much. Let me pray for us and we'll close out. Immortal, invisible God, only wise. You are wise. You know the truth. You know our hearts. You know how we work. And we honor you that you made us, you created us, that we are in your image. And Father, we are broken. We are marred images. Fallen doesn't just mean we're sinners and bad people. Fallen means that all the things that you create us to be like are broken. And that has so many effects on our marriages. And we come to you tonight newly humbled and say, uh, I can't speak for these people, but I see so many of these places that I am no good at in my life. And I need so much growth, even like the fight that Norman and I had last night. Um, we ask for your healing. I, I ask on behalf of this body, that you would be working Holy Spirit in their midst, that you would be helping them heal and grow in these areas, that you would be helping develop the, the, the relationships in this body that would be those healing relationships to help them grow, to help us grow, this new culture.
that we might become more like you. We humbly ask that. Um, I pray for the marriages here, that you would bless them in growth, that this weekend would be rich for them. I pray for the singles here. We sometimes forget the anxiety and the vulnerability of that search. I pray for their hearts and, and their longings there, that we would be a support to them as well. Give us good rest tonight and be with us again in the morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. Thank you.